I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. Good morning and welcome to Church of the Cross. My name is Peter. I'm one of the priests here. I want to say a special welcome, especially if you are a guest. We are so glad you're here with us. As Krista was mentioning, uh, yesterday we had our parish retreat. It was a fantastic time. There was cornhole and basketball and lots of breakfast tacos and some awesome teaching. And we were all a little haggard and low energy, those of us who were here uh, yesterday. I think some of you might be watching online this morning. Uh, but we will continue in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, the book of Haggai, from which our Old Testament reading this morning is drawn, opens with this bracing question to the people of God. In chapter 1, verse 4, the word of the Lord comes to the prophet Haggai, why do your homes look so good while the temple, the house of the Lord, remains a ruin? Why are your houses enclosed and sealed up, places of comfort and life, while the temple is desolate and wasted? Building on that opening, bracing question, chapter one of the book continues with the word of the Lord imploring the people of God, give careful thought to your ways and connects their experiences of difficulty, of famine and poverty to their unwillingness to build God's house, the temple. What you brought home, I blew away, the Lord says. Why? Because of my house which remains a ruin while each of you is busy with your own house. I have to admit this language of divine threat holds a certain intrigue as a motivational tactic in a capital campaign. <laughs> want to be provided for? Want to respond to the difficulties in your life? Make a commitment. Sign on the dotted line. Give, give, give. Instead of thanks be to God, the slogan would be escape the wrath that is coming. Yet beneath the surface, this bracing word of the Lord in chapter one of Haggai provokes a question, doesn't it? Why is it that the Lord needs a house? It's not as though God is in need of extra square footage or on Zillow or monitoring interest rates. Why is it that he calls for this temple to be built or rebuilt? We are continuing the sermon series today related to this thanks be to God initiative. And this is the penultimate sermon in this series. The initiative, the campaign concludes on November 6th, two weeks from now, on the Sunday when we will celebrate the Feast of All Saints. And on that day, we as a community will offer up our commitments for the coming three years toward the work, the hopes of this campaign related to this property, this building. We're all praying, how are you inviting us to participate, Lord? And on the 6th, we'll bring those cards forward as a response of faith to what God has revealed to us, giving over and above regular tithes and offerings as an act of worship, commitment to the work of God among us. But beyond that very significant act and a, a big party afterward, the 6th is going to be more about all saints and baptisms and such. So communication about the campaign and especially preaching related to it are this week and next, today and the 30th. And the sermons today and next week, as the last two, are very much related. In my mind, they are two connected parts. And both are devoted to the subject of giving or generosity. And we're going to be talking about what is going on when we are generous, when we give. You are a generous and giving people. 
I've experienced it. I've witnessed it. So what is going on when we give, when we're generous? That question is related to this question of why does God ask the people of God to build a temple? God is spirit. He's not subject to the same physical needs as we are. He does not need shelter. Neither is his glory contingent upon the beauty of something that carries his name, right? This is why the early church teacher, Theodoret of Sire, writes, God has no need of what the people can build, right? It's not like he's going to have the memorial Yahweh wing of the gymnasium or something like that. He doesn't need it. As we think about our generosity and the related work we might do in this building on this property, this is important for us to remember. God does not need what we might give, nor does he need the the good works that we might do here. The purposes of God are not contingent on how much money is raised, nor is the honor and worship of God hanging in the balance dependent on how amazing we can be, the amazing things we might do. That, again, might be a tempting motivational lever to pull, to say God's purposes and honor are up for grabs, but that is not true. His purposes, his glory are secure. So if all that's the case, then why the charge to rebuild the temple? It's not in our reading, but just before it, Haggai chapter 1 verse 8 suggests an answer. The Lord says, go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house build the temple, make offerings, that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. God's good pleasure and his glory. That idea of glory, the glorification of God, the glory of the temple continues in our reading this morning in chapter two. You may have noticed it there. The people have responded. They're building the temple, but it doesn't reflect the former glory of the temple prior to their exile. To those who are in the know, it kind of looks like a dump. It doesn't look good. At the retreat yesterday, part of our time was spent doing neighborhood walks, kind of reflecting on what we saw around us, the the built environment around us. And as we came back, we were invited to kind of reflect. And the conversation, the word that came to mind was like, it's pretty desolate. It's empty on the weekend. There's trash. There's things that are not well taken care of. And that can be kind of like a despairing environment. And that's something similar, it seems, to what the people of God are experiencing here. This is given just after, shortly after the initial charge to start, and they're discouraged. It doesn't look good. Like, should we even continue? What is the point? I suspect many of us can identify with that point of despair. I know I can. Many of us are deeply in touch with the failures, the deficiencies in what we might produce, what we might offer. Early on in our life as a church, a church of the cross, our bishop said to me, Peter, you are going to be much more aware of the ways the church falls short than anyone else. And he was right, probably. I think he was identifying something in me, like for which I go to counseling and have received healing and need more healing about, that sense like, oh, if I have a hand in it, it's fatally flawed. Maybe you can identify. But also because of the position I was in, right? I was the the priest, solo priest at the beginning of a church plant. And now Mother Sarah and Mother Kimberly are here, staff and clergy, and we all kind of now share that load. But most of us, many of us, are aware of the deficiencies we have as a church, as a body. We're imperfect. And that can be discouraging. That can be despairing. 
it can prompt the question of like our, the continued worth of our work, of our effort. And maybe in relation to this moment in our corporate life, this season in our life, you feel some of that. Perhaps you've experienced some of the deficiencies we have as a community. And perhaps you've heard some of the vision language and, that we've shared, and you're wondering, well, will that actually come to pass? Will the dreams that we've articulated actually come to fruition? Perhaps totally unrelated to the church and the campaign, your circumstances cause you to question, is it worth it to give and to give up for the sake of the Lord? Especially when you don't see much difference, when the value of what you might give seems so paltry, the potential payoff so low. A few months ago, I was listening to a podcast with Paul Spilsbury, who's a professor of New Testament at Regent College, where I went to seminary. He wasn't there at the time, but he is now. And Dr. Spilsbury was recounting a trip that he recently took to archaeological digs in Turkey. And he was marveling on this podcast at the hundreds, the thousands of church structures, ancient, that are being excavated there, with beautiful mosaics and artistic spaces for worship being dug out of the ground. And on the podcast, he was celebrating these beautiful, historic expressions of church life, of devotion to God. And as I was listening to him marvel, I was like struck with the question, yeah, but what happened? If there were these hundreds and even thousands of churches, what happened to them? They're literally under layers of dirt. Ruins are all that is left. As we think about the future here at 8140 Exchange Drive, as we think about the future for us as a church community, there's no like magic sauce, there's no silver bullet that guarantees what we build will endure. History gives us plenty of examples of this. Beautiful church buildings that now stand empty. Communities that gave and sacrificed and no longer meet and worship. Does it not seem to you like nothing? That's the question God asked the people in Haggai. Are you questioning the point of it all? Doesn't it seem like nothing? If God doesn't need it, and there's no guarantees of this glorious, great ending, enduring thing, what is the point? Verses 8 and 9. The silver is mine, the glory is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. And the glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house. And in this place, I will grant peace. God is not short of cash. And he has no need of what we can build. But it is his good pleasure and to his glory that we do so. In our giving, when we give, there is a declaration of value. For the people of God to build for him a temple, a house of beauty, of meaning, is an expression of the value he has for them. It's part of their covenant faithfulness, their response to the deliverance that he has given them, of his care for them through the wilderness and beyond. The people of God give. They give what is precious to themselves, what costs them something as an expression of the glory that he is due. I've talked about this before, but the Hebrew word translated in our reading as glory is related to the word for weight or heaviness. And the idea is, is that you give greater weight to those things that you honor, that are worthy of receiving glory. You, you give them weight. 
What is being called for in Haggai 1 and then demonstrated in Haggai 2 is the giving of weight, the rendering of value to the Lord. God doesn't need a house, but he's worthy of the greatest value. So what's being called out in chapter 1 is neglect of what is most valuable to the people of God, God himself. And what is being affirmed in chapter 2 is that as humble as the offering might be, as partial and incomplete as it might be, the value is being shown. The honor is being received. God is being glorified. So be strong. Don't give up. Keep on in the work. Think of our context. Some of us in this season have the means to give and commit quite a lot. Others of us, much less so. And the goal, the intention, is not equality of amount spread throughout each household. But the intention is this shared communication of value to God. We are together glorifying him as little or as great as our offering might be. In Scripture, this is the logic of sacrifice. God, as the psalmist declares, has no need of bulls, but as the currency of the time, these things were given as an expression of honor and glory to God. And throughout history, the means of that expression of honor shifts, right? You have gold and precious stones given at times. Old churches used to have tithe barns where the first fruits, like what was first harvested, could be brought in and gathered to God. But what continues is this communication of value to the Lord, declaring to him, you are more valuable to me, to us, than the security, the comfort, the good that this thing secures me. In the light of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, the, the new covenant he establishes, the logic of sacrifice develops. So the old system of sacrificial offerings is no longer required. Jesus' death on the cross is this full and complete offering, atoning for sin, redeeming us from hell, death, and Satan. It's finished, he says. Thanks be to God. But the logic of sacrifice, this demonstration of value by the people of God, continues. So Paul writes in Romans 12, in view of God's mercy, offer yourself as a living sacrifice. What is of most value there encompasses all that we are, our very being. That is your reasonable, appropriate act of worship. And Paul says these really mysterious things in his other letters, like Colossians 1 or elsewhere in Romans, Romans 8. We're like, what we give, the sacrifice that we make, is in some mysterious way a participation in what Jesus is doing, the glory that he is rendering to the Father on the cross. Like, we have a part in the sacrifice of Jesus. I think the person who most clearly exemplifies this in Scripture outside of Jesus is Mary. She says to Gabriel, I'm the servant of the Lord. May it be to me according to what you have said. That's sacrifice. That's offering up herself. Exercising her own agency, her own decision to give what is of the greatest value back to God. And that's costly to Mary, right? No doubt, at this point in her life, she has a sense of where life was headed, of what she might do and be with all that she had received. And because of this decision, she gives that up. And it's costly into the future, right? A sword will pierce your own soul, Mary. And it does. She sees her son crucified. 
And even before that, there are hints in the Gospels of the ways she had to give Jesus up to the purposes of God in a way that she would have experienced as loss. To be faithful in the way that Mary exemplifies costs something. In this season of our shared life, in the whole of our lives following after Jesus, it costs. There's someone at Church of the Cross who has already made a commitment in this campaign. And about a month ago, I was walking with them. They told me that they had come with a clear amount of what they could give. Like, this is the amount. And as they prayed and they listened to the Holy Spirit, they had a sense that they were being invited to give more than they had planned like 10 times more. And without knowing where that money would come from, it's not like they had 10 times more just lying around, they faithfully made this commitment. And that was a costly decision. I suspect it was scary and perhaps even painful. Think about the risk and what could otherwise have been done with such funds. But as an act of faith, communicating glory to God, they made this sacrifice. There is loss involved in what we are doing. As we ask God about how he is inviting us to participate, more often than not, it costs something. Jesus, as the clearest example of a flourishing, perfect human being who suffered and died, shows us this. No one participated with God more than Jesus. And it killed him. As you and I pray and respond to God's invitation, there is real cost involved. But that cost is at least part of the point. The giving of what we have received, the things of great value that we give. The giving of ourselves, the laying down of our hopes for the future, our security, aspects of our comfort, is the sacrifice of praise to which we are called communicating to God, you are of greater value. The costly sacrifice communicates, celebrates the glory, the honor that God is due, giving weight to him. And that is what matters. That is what God is inviting his people into in the book of Haggai and what he is inviting us into now. Yes, there are cool, amazing things we might do in this space. We talked about it yesterday, the ways that this space might become a place of meaning and memory, pointing us and others to God, the way it might bless our neighbors and bless the community around us. But beyond that, what we are invited to in the whole of our lives and together is a declaration of God's value by offering up what is most valuable to us, our very selves. Never mind what you might be giving to the campaign. Begin with this. Offer yourself to the Lord. He is worth it. And we make this offering without knowing the future. Right? There's no mention of the cross in Gabriel's announcement to Mary. She does not know all that the future holds, and still she says yes. We don't know what the future holds. We have hopes, we have desires, expectations, but it's unknown. Yet what is known, and what is assured, is the promise that God gives to his people, to us, in Haggai chapter 2. I am with you. My spirit remains among you. What is known, what is assured, is the promise of his presence. 
through the costly sacrifice and into the future. The promise that we have a home with him and in him, as Psalm 84 suggests. He is with you. And even more, the promise, the assurance is here. I will shake the heavens and the earth, and I will fill this house with glory, and I will grant peace. That's the language of God's purposes fulfilled. That's the language of in the end, it being as Jesus says it will be. It's the reversal of exile, you'll notice, that God's people have suffered. The wealth has been poured out of Jerusalem, and now it is being returned by God. Unjust things being undone. This is resurrection language. It's the language of so much of what we see and suffer, of what is painfully predictable in our world being undone. It will not endure. But the plans of God are that the glory of the Lord will fill the whole of creation, and the heavens and the earth will be his temple, his house, and there will be peace that endures. That is guaranteed. That endures. That is assured for you and I. So as we make our sacrifice, as we offer up to God's purposes what is most valuable, ourselves, that is what we're participating in. That is what we're drawn into, to God's good pleasure for his glory. That's what you're assured of, that the glory of God will fill this house and the whole of creation will know his peace. That the so predictable way of the world where might makes right, where greed is rewarded, where we have to grasp to make ourselves feel secure, will be shaken, will be undone. And what is offered to God will be fruitful, participates in the bringing of his glory and the completion of his purposes. Do you want your money to work for you? Do you want your life to be fruitful? Offer them up to the Lord. The person who I mentioned previously who's made their commitment 10 times more than they expected shared with me a few weeks ago how they have seen through various and unplanned means all that they needed to make their commitment and to live come in over the last few weeks in faith-building ways. I am sure that gift, that commitment was still costly, but they have had a sense of God's abundant provision in it. Let me be super clear. I am not promising, cannot promise to you, that what we commit to in this campaign will return to us in this precise way. But what is clear in Scripture is that as we take on Mary's posture, God will be faithful. And that what we give over to the Lord, our money, our time, ourselves, will not be wasted. Whatever the future holds, it will bring glory to God. Our humble offerings now, Hebrews says, are by Christ's sacrifice for us on the cross, made perfect and glorious. And they will bear fruit in the participation of his enduring plans. Now and in this season and into the future, that's guaranteed. And on that topic, the future and our generosity, you'll hear more about that next week. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.